and welcome to Start Your Week with a Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor, and joining me to discuss week two of Prime Minister Sunak, plus much else, is Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello, Ros. I imagine Rishi Sunak will be pretty pleased with the couple of polls suggesting the public trusts him a bit more than they do Keir Starmer to handle the economy. But of course, we haven't had his autumn statement yet. On the other hand, he apparently gets a very hard time on the latest Shagged Married Annoyed podcast. But before we talk Sudak, let's briefly remember Liz Truss. A story emerged at the weekend about her phone being hacked, didn't it? Yeah, it appears that, well, according to the Mail on Sunday, they got the scoop that Liz Truss's personal phone was hacked by agents suspected of working for the Kremlin. I don't suppose they were just looking for Spire's photos on her phone. But according to the report, the hack was discovered during the summer's Tory leadership campaign. So this was actually kind of, you know, not really public knowledge for quite a while. And basically, it was when Truss was foreign secretary. The details were suppressed by Boris Johnson, who, of course, was prime minister at the time, as well as cabinet secretary Simon Case. Um, And yeah, apparently the hack exposed a year's worth of messages, including highly sensitive discussions with senior international foreign dignitaries about the war in Ukraine, as well as like detailed discussions about arms shipments. So not not great. And, and apparently the phone is so hacked that they've, or so compromised, I should say, that they've placed it in a secure location, secure government location, locked, locked away, I'm sure, under lock and key. So yeah, it's a pretty major revelation, especially coming after it was revealed, of course, that Suella Braverman had been sacked um, for her own security breach, uh, sending an email from her personal phone. So yeah, I mean, I feel like the big question in all of this is why are senior ministers using their private phones and their private emails to conduct government business? <laughs> not a great look. It's a very good question. There's also a lot of disquiet over Suella Braverman's handling of the refugee processing centre at Manston. What's happening there? Yeah, so she's facing fresh allegations that as Home Secretary, she failed to act on legal advice that the government was illegally detaining thousands of asylum seekers, a move that, as I understand it, could open up the UK government to pretty significant legal action if, if it ever went to court. Apparently, the Home Secretary received advice about three weeks ago, warning that migrants were being detained for unlawfully long periods. And apparently it resulted in really kind of horrible conditions, scabies. Yeah, just really not great. And of course, now Braverman is in in the foreign office, but, but, you know, this is, I think, kind of just does show a a perhaps concerning track record. And and then, as I say, that coupled with the security breach in in the foreign office, I think, is, um, yeah, she's under quite a lot of fire, perhaps more so than Sunak anticipated bringing her on. I wonder if now he feels like that was perhaps a risky move to repay her for her support of him during the leadership contest, which is at least how it appears. So yeah, Rishi Sunak made quite a swift political comeback, but Braverman did too. Meanwhile, refugees continue to arrive over the channel in small boats, thanks partly to the continuing warm weather this autumn. And a centre at Dover was firebombed over the weekend. Do we know who was responsible for that? No, as of this recording, we do not. The, the person responsible is still unnamed. What we do know is that they were basically seen throwing petrol bombs at this migrant centre before ultimately taking their own life. And as far as I'm aware, the injuries sustained were just two people had uh, suffered minor injuries at the attack, but thankfully it wasn't worse than that. And last I saw from the BBC, the situation isn't being treated as, as a terrorism incident. I know Braverman called it very distressing, so I'm, I'm sure we'll learn more as the week goes on. Back to Rishi Sunak himself. What have we gleaned over the weekend about his plans for Britain? Yeah, so the Sunday Times was reporting that Sunak and his Chancellor Jeremy Hunt had gone through 104 
spending slashing or tax raising proposals line by line, apparently. Um, and that's so far the, the, the main thing that's been ring fenced is the NHS. Apparently, officials are looking at, you know, extending, uh, obviously, there, there's a, I think, 40 billion pound hole to fill. And some of the, the ways I think officials are thinking about doing that is extending the windfall tax on oil companies to include electricity generators and raising the rate from 25% to 30%, which I'm sure labor would no doubt be thrilled about, because I think this is something that they have also been calling for. Um, and they've also been mulling extending a freeze on income tax personal allowances by two years. Needless to say, I mean, they're, they're just, I think they're trying to just find ways to patch up this hole any way they can. Even apparently, I think it was the Sunday Times was also reporting that Hunt is mulling an introduction of a road tax for electric cars and van owners. As someone who does not drive, I just feel really vindicated, <laughs> obviously having the privilege not, not to have to drive around. There's also uh, this one I thought was quite interesting. Apparently, they're considering a levy on homes owned by foreign millionaires living abroad. That could raise billions, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it seems like there are quite a lot of various proposals but of course, you know, I, I think we're not going to get much clarity probably until we get to that autumn statement. Um, but to the point that you made, I mean, it's it certainly is true. They Sunak can at least, in, I guess, enjoy knowing that that people regard him as, um, yeah, as, as potentially being a safer pair of hands for the economy than than Starmer. But but I think we'll have to wait until the the statement um, in, in a couple of weeks' time to to see if that trust was well placed. Yes, and Michael Gove, the um, levelling up and housing minister again, has been out and about promising that the housing target is back. So that would be interesting to see if uh, a housing target can finally be met by a Conservative government. And this week, we're expecting an interest rate rise on Thursday. So mortgage is likely going up and the results of the Royal College of Nursing strike ballot, plus further strikes on the tube. Royal Mail has cancelled its strike this week. There's a big demo in London on Saturday to demand a general election at which Jeremy Corbyn and Mick Lynch will be speaking. Let's go over to Brazil, where Lula beat Bolsonaro in the presidential runoff. There is huge relief for many, but it was a narrow victory, wasn't it? Yes, very narrow. I think a lot closer than we would have expected just a month ago when, when the first round took place. Lula won with about 50.9% to Bolsonaro's 49.1%. So yes, very narrow contest. I think all eyes now are turning to what happens next. With regard to Bolsonaro, um, as of this time, he hasn't actually conceded or, or offered any comment. We just know that a, a lot of his supporters were were out and about last night and were obviously quite upset. And, and many of them indeed are not basically accepting the, the contest. And, and it's no shock as to why, because Bolsonaro spent much of the past year sowing doubt in in the election, um, saying that it was susceptible to fraud. So it'll be interesting to see what he says. I think a lot of people are obviously bracing for him bringing kind of Trump-like stop the steal type tactics to Brazil. But I'm, the silence, I would imagine, is, is Bolsonaro mulling his options. What are Lula's priorities when he hopefully takes office in January? Yeah, so he has a pretty significant entry. I mean, I think the biggest being uniting and rebuilding the country that's deeply divided after four years of Bolsonaro's far-right anarchic rule. But I, I think a big issue that he highlighted in his victory speech is addressing poverty. I believe 33 million Brazilians face acute hunger. 100 million live in poverty. These are, you know, obviously some pretty dire numbers. But but then also a, a big theme in his victory speech was addressing deforestation um, in the Amazon which is something that increased um, under Bolsonaro's tenure year by year. 
So yeah, he, he made, he highlighted that in his victory speech and pledged to fight for zero deforestation. But I think it's also important. And, and we kind of, you know, saw a similar thing from Biden when, when he won his election against Trump is that Lula struck quite a conciliatory tone, said he would govern for all Brazilians and not just those who voted for him. He said, this country needs peace and unity. The population doesn't want to fight anymore. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that, how that goes down and whether that's true. Meanwhile, Elon Musk has been making his presence felt on Twitter, which, of course, he now owns. He weighed in over the weekend on the hammer attack on US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. And there was quite a lot of arrant disinformation there, wasn't there? Yeah. I mean, he's he's officially the chief twit, at least according to his Twitter biography. Um, and he acted like a twit. Um, I, I don't actually know if that, that's a word or, or in his but it sounded fitting for him. But yeah, he I, I missed all of this because I actually do try to spend as little time on the site as possible, especially on the weekend. But apparently uh, one of his first acts as, as the company's new owner was to post a baseless conspiracy theory about the assault of Paul Pelosi, uh, the husband of U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, to Twitter, just for some background. Um, an intruder um, got into uh, the Pelosi San Francisco home. Nancy Pelosi was not there at the time, but this intruder was armed with a hammer and he reportedly asked, where is Nancy? So I, I believe Musk posted something to the effect of kind of suggesting that it was some sort of false flag attack or he ended ended up deleting it. Um, but of course, not before it had received an excess of 24,000 retweets um, and 86,000 likes. So um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think, an interesting start to the sort of Musk era of Twitter and sort of, yeah, what, what we can potentially expect from from the site. He seems to be trolling us quite a lot already. I mean, we've, we've learned that people with blue ticks may have to pay, I think, $240 to keep them. Great source of satisfaction to me, I have to say, because I've been refused three times at blue from Twitter, so not going to bother me. But um, and also claims that there will be special kind of areas of Twitter where you could literally have fights between blue ticks. I mean, where where they just have standoffs. It sounds just terrific, doesn't it? Oh God, yeah. I mean, I did see the thing about the Verge was reporting that yeah, they want to put blue tick verification behind a paywall. I, I think twenty twenty bucks. I don't know if that's a month or, or whatever, but yeah. I mean, it's uh, to be honest, I, I do have a blue tick, and I'll be bidding it a fond farewell if and when that comes about because I certainly will not be paying for it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 such a weird, it's a very confusing time to be on the site because on the one hand, you have Musk tweeting, Twitter will be forming a content moderation council, you know, and though, though with widely diverse viewpoints and that they're not going to be making any content decisions until that's instated. But on the other hand, of course, we're seeing an increase in the number of, of derogatory terms being used on the site. In fact, the Twitter's head of safety and integration tweeted that over the last, I, I think he tweeted this over the weekend, but basically over the last 48 hour period, they'd seen a small number of accounts posting a ton of tweets that included slurs um, and, and other sort of derogatory terms. And apparently these are around 50,000 tweets coming from just around 300 accounts. And, and they said they're handling it, that, you know, Twitter's policies haven't changed. But th there's clearly that I think shows us that there is a group on Twitter who want to test the limits of what Musk is going to allow them to do. And certainly in the United States, at least, conservatives, the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, were cheering Musk's takeover of the company. Because I think in their mind, that means that, you know, they're, they're going to kind of get free reign to say what they want, uh, potentially see their favorite account, Donald Trump, potentially return. Musk has made that clear that he, he thought the ban on him was, was something that he was not supportive of. And of course, Kanye's back. So yeah, it's, I mean, Twitter was always a hellscape. 
but it very much feels like it's about to become an even worse one. In Ukraine, Russia has launched rocket attacks on Kyiv and other major Ukrainian cities this morning and suspended the deal that let Ukraine export grain through Black Sea ports. What effect is the colder weather that's coming likely to have on the war this autumn? I mean, I think the Kremlin is broadly hoping that the winter months are going to put significant pressure on populations around the world, particularly in the West, who are now having to deal with higher energy costs. And, you know, it's worth noting that with regard to the grain decision, um, many poorer nations in particular rely on Ukraine for grain and other food products. So that's no doubt going to lead to an increase in food prices at a time when we're already seeing rising inflation around the world. I think, you know, I've spoken to, to various kind of officials here in the UK and elsewhere about, you know, the prospect of Ukraine fatigue and even though the polls are are not suggesting that, you know, particularly like in Western capitals, like here in the UK, people are broadly very supportive of Ukraine and of the policies that the governments, that their respective governments have taken to apply pressure on Russia. I think the concern, of course, is that once the sort of higher energy costs, costs of living, once all those things come to bite in the winter, um, there's, of course, a concern that, you know, domestically con- countries may feel like, hey, we need to look inward and address these these issues. Um, so I, I think there, there's going to be a lot of pressure. Um, and, and I think the jobs of governments, of course, is, is to communicate as best they can t- to their populations what's at stake in Ukraine, uh, but also to help sort of soften the impact to, to the extent that they can. I mean, you know, obviously we've seen here in the UK, and this is something Trust talked about a lot because it was kind of the, the the only real achievement was capping energy prices, uh, at, at least until April, to sort of soften that burden. But of course, there are going to be other burdens. So I, it's definitely one to watch. And here in Britain, it's six months since Ukrainian refugees began arriving, which means the initial commitment their hosts made is coming to an end. And that leaves a number of them in a very precarious position, possibly homeless or possibly trying to get accommodation and competing with with Britons for that. COP27 is starting next weekend and Rishi Sunak isn't going, or is he? There seems to be some doubt, nor is Prince Charles, who really wanted to. But we hear that Boris Johnson, on the other hand, may be turning up. Are we expecting any breakthroughs, Yasmin? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it was reported in the Financial Times that Rishi Sunak is uh, potentially opening the door to a possible U-turn over his decision not to attend the COP27 in, in Egypt. This is largely because there's been a growing amount of criticism, not in, including from his own backbenchers. So it, it will be interesting to see. I mean, you know, the, the excuse that he made with regard to why he wasn't going to go initially was that he has a pretty overflowing domestic entree, um, which, you know, I don't think anyone disputes. Uh, but the optics of not going aren't great, especially if you're going to potentially be upstaged by one of your predecessors who not so secretly wish that he was in your place. I, I think this would also, you know, it's, it's worth remembering that I think Sunak as sort of an international figure. I think we've kind of a yet to really see that. And this would be his first, I think, major sort of international event. Um, Joe Biden is going to be there. Emmanuel Macron is going to be there. So, you know, I, I would imagine Britain's own allies are probably wondering where they are as well, especially considering that they hoped co- they hosted COP um, just last year. But, but as for, you know, the overall summit and whether breakthroughs are unlikely, I mean, if you ask Greta Thunberg, who's not attending, she said these COP meetings are kind of a way of trying to achieve change in a very slow way. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not expecting a ton of breakthroughs from this COP. Um, but, but but I think it probably would be good, if nothing else, for Britain's sort of international image, if, if they did have someone senior and ideally the prime minister there. 
finally, there's an election in Israel this week, which you've been following. Will there be a switch of power? Oh, gosh, <laughs> that's the question. And Israel has a lot of elections. This is their fifth in just under four years. The polls are projecting more of the same in Israel, which is namely political deadlock. Um, just before the weekend, the, they were predicting that Israel's former and longest serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, would come within a single seat of an outright majority in his quest to return to power. If he does return, it will be alongside a block of far-right parties. Um, among his key allies is a far-right lawmaker called Itmar Ben-Gavir, a once-fringe gun-toting firebrand who is a fanboy of the Israeli-American extremist mayor Kahan. Um, if you guys are unfamiliar with him, look him up. But basically, he has, among other unsavory views, expressed support for expelling Palestinians uh, from the region. Ben-Gavir himself has also previously advocated explicitly for the expulsion of all Palestinians, but in recent effort to kind of moderate has just said now that he only feels the need to expel the disloyal ones. The irony, though, is that Palestinian citizens of Israel, who make up about a fifth of the, the country's population, are seen as a key to blocking Netanyahu's return and the far right's rise. Um, but as I wrote in a piece that went up over the weekend for time, blocking the far right isn't necessarily the only thing on the minds of these Arab voters. Um, indeed, many are may not be voting at all. So yeah, the, a lot hinges on this. Um, and, and there's a lot, I spoke to a lot of people in Israel, uh, particularly Palestinian citizens of Israel, lawmakers and others who are really trying to get out the vote. Yeah, I, I think for Arab voters in particular, there, there's a lot of disappointment um, and, and the sort of feeling of why bother. So it, it will be interesting to see what happens there. Yasmin, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Have a good week, listeners, and if you'd like to support The Bunker, you can do so by going to Patreon Bunker Podcast and contributing as little as £3 a month, which is less than the Starbucks at Newport Pagnell Services was charging for a latte yesterday. Thanks, inflation. I'm Ros Taylor. Happy Halloween, and join us tomorrow for another Bunker. Starting a week from the bunker was written and presented by Roz Taylor with Yasmin Serhan. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager was Gina Richard. The bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>